Yeah, hey everybody, it's No Slothgren. You're listening to Iron City Rocks. You keep rocking and stay safe. Hey everybody, this is Gary Hoey, and you are hanging with my friend John on Iron City Rocks. Hey, this is Warren Haynes of Government Mule, and you're listening to Iron City Rocks. episode 476 of the Iron City Rocks podcast. I'm your host, John, coming to you from the Iron City of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, bringing the best rock, hard rock, heavy metal, and blues talk on the net. Episode 476, two very special guests joining us for the first time, Grammy Award-winning vocalist Warren Haynes of the band Government Mule. Obviously, guitarist, I'd be remiss not to mention that. Warren, one of the greatest slide players and an amazing singer. Um, Government Mule has the first album in four years out now. It's called Heavy Load Blues, uh, screaming up the blues charts. Uh, their first foray into sort of a very blues-focused album. Uh, so we'll talk to Warren in just a moment. And also joining us, violinist, dancer, performance, Lindsay Sterling will be joining us to talk about her Christmas tour that has kicked off. Uh, she'll be in the city of Pittsburgh on the 13th of December, so we will talk to her about that. So... We're going to get into first to the interview with Warren Haynes. Again, um, the album Heavy Load Blues is available now. The album was done, as Warren talks about, uh, kind of in parallel with another studio album that they plan on releasing in 2022. Uh, this was done kind of as a uh, side project, uh, nighttime kind of thing. Uh, I think it sounded like really a great way to recharge their batteries musically. So we're going to get into that interview with Warren Haynes. <laughs> Distinct pleasure to welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the line from Government Mule, 
and I'm the Allman Brothers Band, obviously, Warren Haynes. How you doing, Warren? Good. How are you doing? Doing fantastic. Uh, you have just dropped a new album, Heavy Load Blues. Uh, I, I know as a, a Mule fan for a long time, was so excited to get some new material from you guys. You guys are obviously doing live albums and and you know kind of uh, the Halloween show kind of stuff to keep us uh, keep the appetite wet. But uh, a new full-on album and you know a deluxe version to boot. Can can you talk a little bit about why a blues album now at this point in your career? Well, for several years now, I've been talking about and thinking about uh, making a, a blues record. Uh, it's it's kind of been on my list of things to do. And then when COVID hit and everybody was locked down and everything, a, a few things happened. I was I was writing more music than I have in decades, which was great. That was one of the positives of the whole thing. Uh, but I also wrote a handful of blues songs, which I don't usually consider uh, the songs that I write to be blues songs, but somehow I had written five or six uh, over that time period. And so I started thinking more about bringing that to the front burner and, and uh, going in the studio. So when we started talking with Government Mule about making another studio record, we decided, well, why don't we make two records? Uh, we have all this time on our hands. Why don't we go in the studio and make a, a normal type of government mule record and also this blues record, which turned out to be half original material and, and half covers. Mm -hmm. So we uh, hold up in the studio making two records at the same time in two different rooms with two different sets of equipment and everything. that They, they sound completely different from each other, and intentionally so. And so we have another record that's going to come out next year. But it was just, uh, I think the whole COVID thing forced it out. Everybody had the blues and kind of still has the blues. I was just going to ask you, what was the state of the world, you know, does it make writing that kind of material? You mentioned, you know, some of that material's original stuff. Does it make it a little bit easier to have that to write about and obviously easier to sing about? You know some of these old older blues songs. You know that pain is is pretty real and pretty relevant right now, and pretty universal. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think uh, you know I, that music has always been so close to my heart. I, I've been a blues fan since I was uh, barely a teenager, but I, I never wanted to limit what I was doing to just traditional blues. But something about these kind of time periods do make that connection even stronger, I think, uh, and from a writing standpoint, from a from a guitar playing standpoint, and and as you said, uh, from a from a singing standpoint, uh, I really feel that the whole world's kind of going through the same thing right mm -hmm. now, and that uh, you know, never in my lifetime has there been a situation that's global like this where you you know how everyone feels uh all over the world you know yeah uh, and, and so i think all that adds to to the the picture it was time to to bring this out and and you know we did it in a way where we would go in the studio during the day and work on the new government mule record that's going to come out next year and then about nine o'clock at night we would g walk over to the blues room and just play live no headphones uh we're all set up right on top of each other like we were in a tiny club 
and we would play the blues for a few hours and then go home and come back the next day and do the same thing. Do you think you know going in that direction at night made you know maybe spark some things even you know totally different during the day that you know kind of letting you know the the walls of government mule not that it's a band that's ever been real confined by styles or genres but kind of you know doing something a little bit off the beaten path for you guys at night maybe spark some creativity towards a more traditional government meal during the day yeah i think that and also just being able to shut off our brains and Mm -hmm. stop thinking you know because most of the day was spent working on new material that's much more complex and and that's evolving in the studio uh and so at the end of the day we would just shut off our brains and, and play blues and also i remember reading an interview with muddy waters when i was a teenager where he talked about making uh, the Hard Again record that Johnny Winter produced. And he said it was his favorite experience making a record because Johnny let him record at night. Mm -hmm. He said prior to that, he always had to record during the daytime. And and he's like, that's not when you play the blues. You play the blues at night. Yeah. Did that, um, from a vocal perspective, is, is singing at night different? Like that, I mean, you're obviously used to singing, you know, from 9 p.m. to, you know, hell, mule plays till after midnight, it seems, many times. But do, do you vocally perform differently during different times of the day? Yeah, I think uh, my voice is more warmed up uh, in the evening and, and at nighttime. You know, when we're recording, I usually wait till later in the day or, or at night to uh, to sing if I have that. So I definitely think there's there's a difference. Uh, and since these performances were live, you know, we were keeping the vocal performances as well as as the music. So it was important that my voice be in the in the right uh, shape for for the performances. Yeah. No. You you use a lot of different kind of vocal effects and stuff. Was that all analog type things? You know, different songs have some different you know characters to it. Was that all analog stuff? Yeah, uh, really old school. Like we had uh, an old bullet mic, with, like the harmonica players used to play mm-hmm. through, uh, that I set up next to my vocal mic. And so sometimes I would sing into the bullet, which has a, a dirtier sound. And even the, the normal microphone, which normally would be a much more expensive microphone, we would gravitate toward a, a much cheaper mic and run it through an amplifier uh, to give it that old school feeling that those that those blues records had. But you know, we like to record analog anyway. But for mm-hmm. this record, it, it was all analog gear, vintage microphones, vintage guitars, vintage amps. I, I made a joke in one of the videos that where they filmed us uh, recording that everything in that room, for the most part, was was older than me, uh, and, and that's. That was intentional to kind of capture that sound because, you know, the sound kind of makes you perform to it. So sure. uh, as, as a guitar player or uh, any musician, whatever sound you're hearing, you respond to that. And, and that's, uh, that's a big part of, of why that record sounds like it does. Was a lot of thought given when, you know, obviously you have a lot of guitars, amps and things like that at your disposal. Did how do you approach you know when you say okay i'm going to do this song especially a, a cover song how do you decide what 
palette to paint with almost, you know, when it comes to the gear. Well, I took, uh, fortunately, the studio that we recorded in is a a little over an hour from my house. So we had a a truck come to my house and bring a a, a ton of gear from my house and from our warehouse uh, to the studio. So I had more options than I've ever had. I had all these old amps and guitars that, in some cases, I had never even recorded before. And so we would audition, we'd plug this guitar into that amp and go, oh, that sounds cool, that could work for this song. And and a lot of times you kind of know in advance what might work, but not always. Um, so, th- again, the sound is influencing the direction of the performance. So if, if I was going to do an Elmore James song, like uh, the, the opening tune, Blues Before Sunrise, mm-hmm. I used an old Dan Electro guitar from the 50s, that just automatically has that kind of sound. Uh, and I wanted it to be similar to the original recording. You know, we on a song-by-song basis, we would decide if we were going to take it further in our own direction or keep it more close to the bone traditionally. And uh, it, it was nice for some of them to actually sound similar to the original ones, but, but mm-hmm. for some of them, we just took a whole other trail you know yeah now when when you put something like this together i think you know when, when people think of you you are obviously a very heralded guitar player um as well as a singer and you know i th- i hear okay government meals going to do a, a blues album one of the things i think is okay this this might be very very guitar heavy or especially slide you know you're very well known as a slide player but i think you know when i listen to this album i take away more of a song approach, you know, where the song was really the key. And, you know, the solos are there to add flavor. Is that something you think about, or is that just kind of how it ends up? Uh, I think we wanted to strike a balance between uh, songs and uh, jams. You know, like Mm -hmm. there there are three or four songs that really stretch out a lot. Sure. And there are a few that stretch out a little bit, and there are a few that, that barely stretch out at all. Um, I think with any project, you want there to be a balance of the different aspects of, of what's going on. But with the blues, since it's so kind of... Uh, it can be similar from song to song. You know, the blues isn't a genre that goes in a ton of different directions. Mm -hmm. So since there's a similarity between the songs, we wanted to cover as many different types of blues as possible and take as many different approaches to the songs as possible. And that included uh, whether or not we were going to stretch them, uh, whether or not we were going to change the the tempo or the groove. You know, uh, all in all, it was just most important to make a well-balanced record that takes you on a ride you know does when you're putting together uh, you know you've got these tracks you know the the the, you know the let's just say the standard edition that that got put the vinyl the 13 songs do you have to as a musician now start to think uh, i think everyone's used to kind of sequencing you need to have the ebb and the flow between songs but now that you're into the world where you know it's very likely that the bulk of the copies of this may sell in vinyl that you have to start thinking about balancing some of the longer jam type songs with some shorter ones to get it to fit properly in the you know the four sides that you're typically working with absolutely all of that is uh is comes into play 
uh, and, and I'm very much a, a sequencing person anyway. I, mm -hmm. I grew up loving the way records were sequenced. And even though in recent years people kind of forgot about that and a lot of the younger generation just downloads track by track and they don't really care about the sequence of the album. It's always been important to me that the album have uh, a theme yeah. and that the, the sequence is a huge part of that. And so it's cool that vinyls kind of made such a resurgence. So people are kind of forced to to think that way again, which I, I think is great. Um, and yeah, we, we have to figure out what's going to fit on side A, what's going to sit on side, fit on side D. Um, and the same, you know, with the CDs as well, which is you brought up the standard edition. There's a deluxe edition mm -hmm. that has eight extra tracks, uh, because our fans tend to be excessive about, uh, what they want. Sure. So we find that, that more of our fans want the, the deluxe versions than the, the standard versions, which is, was a, a pleasant surprise, but I, but that's, that's the way I am as well. Mm -hmm. If there's more there, I, I would like to hear it, you know. Um, I love the fact that vinyl's back, and we're offering a lot of different versions. We did completely different mastering for the vinyl, so the vinyl sounds different from the CD and from the digital. You know? Yeah, I see it's available on cassette. Was that something that surprised you, the demands back for that as well? Yeah, it, it was. Uh, I didn't expect that, but... Uh, I think it's cool, but I, I, I didn't expect that to be the case. Uh, what, what's next? Maybe eight track. Well, I, I was thinking that you know when I saw that you're going to have to have like a Got Mule number two pencil on there, so when the cassette player eats it, we can get the pencil and wind it back into place. <laughs> That's a good idea, actually. Uh, yeah, and because it inevitably happens, right? Uh, yeah. yeah, especially on the longer ones. You know, but it, it's it's kind of cool to have that that physical experience with the music. You know, I think. We got to the point where it was getting when, when a band would put out a new album as a fan. You're like, I'll buy this, but I, I don't really have anywhere I'll listen to it. But I want to support the artists. You know, I'll drop the 15 bucks or whatever, and, and then listen to it on Spotify so you can make the extra three cents off my million streams. Um, but you know, now I feel like there's you know there's so much more to it. To, you know, the gate folds and, and things. I think it it brings it back as a submersive experience, and I think. This type of album, you know, you listen to it, really screams, you know, this is going to sound really good on vinyl. So it's, it's yeah, and, and you know, like growing up with vinyl, the artwork was a big part of it. Like mm -hmm. you said, the, the gate, the gatefold, and it also kind of not forced you, but allowed you easy access to read all the credits and yeah. and any liner notes and any history that might be included. And I love that stuff growing up. I, I would read every record I owned. I would read it from cover to cover. Uh, and I think that's been missing in recent decades as, as well, because even though maybe the listeners have access to it, it's not right in front of their face. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You can Wikipedia everything, but it's, you know, it's, very cool as a listener to look at, you know, for example, Ain't No Love in the Heart of the City and realize that Coverdale was not the writer of the song, even though yeah. the camera was like, holy yeah. crow. Yeah, I mean, that is, you're, you're exactly right. I think there there is a certain segment of, of most bands, but it's probably especially Mule, where people pour through that stuff. You know, they want to know who the engineer was and who the guitar tech was and the photographer. And 
Um, but that's, you know, I think that's that's a very engaging thing. And uh, uh, the the material itself, I mean, is this something you you see being able to kind of put some of this in your set, or, or maybe some one-off kind of blues shows, you know, in the new year? Well, you know what what we've been talking about uh, is creating a situation where we open for ourselves <laughs> and we play a blues set with stripped down small gear like we did in the studio sure. and then take a break and, and uh, uncover all the, the big normal government mule gear and come back and play a, a, a mule show that way. Uh, and that's what we did for one of our Halloween shows. And it really was effective and, and, and really fun. So I'm hoping we can kind of incorporate that in, into the norm a, a little bit. Uh, irregardless, we'll be able to pepper in any sure. of these songs at any time, but and and not just limit it to these songs, but it, any blues songs I think will now become a bigger part of the overall picture. You know? Yeah, and I, I think you know your fans certainly love that. I have always enjoyed how you guys will throw in stuff like I, the first time I heard "Look Over Yonder Wall" was you. I mean, and, and then I was like, what is that song? I have to find that. It's not on the Mule Records. And then, you know, that's what I love about the blues is that kind of stuff where you hear it, you know, you hear it in a version, you love it, but it's the song. You go back, you discover Elmore James. You know, that kind of stuff is, is a wonderful experience for a listener. So, Yeah, and, and, you know, as musicians, that's the way we discovered a lot of that stuff was you would hear a version and then you would read about who that person yeah got it from and then you would go back and like a family tree and you just keep going backwards and it's it's great to connect those dots because there's almost always a version either older than the one you first discover yeah and and so you get to see where it all came from exactly and that uh you know from and i'm thinking as you're mentioning opening for yourself i'm thinking in the in the 2021 2022 concert world having yourself as your own opening act is pretty smart because it reduces the number of people you're exposed to on the road um, so <laughs> i can't say we thought of that in, in advance but yeah it is a plus <laughs> you you guys are a glutton for long shows to begin with that's you know you're kind of making for a long night there but that that's a, it'll be a really cool experience so and, and well then, we love we love doing the two set thing whenever we can mm-hmm. And, and we love to play. I mean, we kind of look at the rest of the day as, as being the work and yeah. the, the, the show as being the payoff. You know? Absolutely. Well, that's fantastic. Do you guys have much laid out for 2022? I know you have, the, you know, obviously your New Year's runs that you guys have done since the dawn of time, it seems. But do you have a kind of a 2022 roadmap at this point? Yeah, we're looking to get back to work uh, somewhere March-ish. And you know, there, there's a lot of stuff that, if if the world cooperates, we'll be able to to continue this this plan. And once March, April gets here, kind of get back to business as usual. Fantastic. Well, Warren, I want to thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, the new album is available now, and we'll look for another one, which is an awesome thing to look forward to in 2022. Man, thank you so much. My pleasure. Enjoyed it. All right, a big thank you to Warren Haynes again. Heavy Load Blues is available now. You can get that uh, and watch for the new studio album coming out in 2022. That'll be fantastic. Uh, joining us now, uh, a different type of artist, but uh, one who has collaborated with many, many musicians, much in the way Warren Haynes has, 
We're joined by Lindsay Sterling. Lindsay, who is a violinist, uh, but that doesn't really tell the whole tale. She's a very visual performer, dancer, um, and really gets into the worlds of, of kind of electronic and dance music. Um, we're talking to her because she will be coming into town to do a show on the 13th at the Benetton Center here in Pittsburgh on her warmer and winter tour. Uh, so it's some fantastic Christmas music. Uh, she has been nominated and won Billboard Music Awards, um, Teen Choice Awards, all kinds of YouTube awards, um, and really an enjoyable musician. And one of the things I noticed when listening to her music is how she's taken an instrument in such a unique direction. He um, reminds me of very few musicians, can you say, kind of blaze their own trail. Uh, Lindsay, I think, falls into that category. And, and I'm not overstating that because she's a guest on the show. Really a, a fantastic artist. So without further ado, we welcome Lindsay Sterling. Welcome to Iron City Rocks. We have on the line Lindsay Sterling. How are you doing today, Lindsay? I'm good. How are you doing? Doing wonderful. You're going to be rolling into our fair city on the 13th to do a Christmas show here at the Benetton. Um, for for those of you, for those of us who have, have heard your music, um, maybe through Spotify streaming, etc., an idea of what visually we can expect from from the holiday show from you. Oh, man. Um, well, I have to say I love doing the holiday show. It's probably one of my favorite tours to do ever um, because it's just very festive. It's very fun. It's very colorful. And um, I am fortunate enough that I get to travel not only with amazing bandmates, but really incredible dancers. And um, so you're going to see lots of dance, lots of costumes, and lots of sparkles. And also this year we've added aerial acrobatics, which is new for us. So it's a pretty fun show. So you've got kind of a Cirque du Soleil sort of sounding, you know, situation there. Do you cover most of the warmer than in the winter album in that show? Um, yes, we do. We do pretty much most of the warmer in the winter album. We add a few songs and um, let's see. Yeah, so it's pretty much all Christmas music. Cool. I have to. I have to say one. Thank you for covering the the theme from Home Alone. I don't, I've never had a chance to thank you, but that was just such an awesome song. It's an amazing piece of music. I remember having that soundtrack. You know, I don't even know how many years ago that movie came out, and I don't want to know because it'll make me feel old. But such an amazing piece of music um, that I, I can't think of really anyone else who's ever tackled that, or at least that it has brought it to the mainstream where we hear it back. So it's a very cool. Um, 
As well, thank a, you. Well, I mean, John Williams is my favorite. I lo- he's the composer, and so I just had to do it. I couldn't resist. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a, a, a man. I think when when you really look at the you know kind of history of music, we think of you know the Beethovens, the Bachs, the you know amazing songwriters of our time, even you know the Jim Steinmans more recently. John Williams' name sometimes tragically gets left off that list. And then you sit back and you have an event, you know, some symphonies will do like a John Williams night or something. You're like, he's made the soundtrack to everything I, I love. You know, and it's... it's a Right, great. he was kind of the soundtrack to a lot of our childhoods in a big way. Yeah, exactly. In, in so many, so many different ways. As, as a... You know, you you were a musician, obviously at a very early age. You know, and and tackled an instrument that, you know, to be honest, were you excited about the violin at, at that early age, or was that something you were kind of saddled with? I actually was. Um, surprisingly, I asked my parents for lessons when I was like five years old, and I just didn't stop asking. I didn't stop talking about it. So finally, when I was six, they. We're like, okay, I think she's serious, and they got me a little violin and started me in lessons. Was there was there somebody at that point in your life where you said, boy, that's you know, a lot of times, you know, a lot of people will say, oh, yeah, the Beatles drove you to music, or I saw Eddie Van Halen, you know, that made me want to pick up a guitar. But was there somebody in your life that you know, whether it was in a family or in popular music or something, that you said, boy, I want to do that because of that person? You know, it's very much because of my parents, and they were not musicians themselves, but they loved music. They loved classical music especially, Mm -hmm. and so from a really young age, they were playing, you know, orchestral music in our home, and they were taking me and my sisters to these, like, community orchestra concerts, and it just made me, you know, really exposed to, like, a lot of different instruments, and I, being the very smart child I was, I saw that the violins were always the kind of the star of the orchestra and so it was never an individual per se just kind of um the essence of the instrument itself um and seeing they always got the solos and the fast parts and that's what drew me was there a point in your career where you said you know i I love the violin i love to play the violin but i don't necessarily want to be you know in a chair seated next to the cellos and violas and I want to go and and take this in a direction that that really few people I can't think of anyone since Kenny G who's maybe taken an orchestral you know traditionally orchestral instrument and taken it in this direction you know I it it was a little bit less of a like specific um, decision well I think it came more from the fact that I just kind of had always imagined that's what I would be if I was a violinist. And yet, you know, when it came down to it, and I was about to go to college to study to be a classical violinist and, mm-hmm. you know, spend the rest of my career sitting in a chair in an orchestra, like you explained, um, all of a sudden I just knew that wasn't for me. It just felt so not right. And, it, and I just realized I didn't like it anymore. And that made me really sad because... I loved the violin growing up and it was such a huge part of my identity as a person was being a violinist. And so rather than quitting, I just thought, okay, I'm not going to major in music. I am going to have fun with it. I'm going to go out there and I'm going to just start to play in bands and like play different styles of music. And I kind of went on this like search for passion again. And in so doing, I found this style and kind of, made the style out of all the different 
you know, people I collaborated with. I took little bits and pieces of what I'd learned and felt and liked, and it turned into what I do now. Yeah, it's it's so interesting to listen to because when I when I you know going through you know some of your catalog and, and such, it's it's you know maybe it's so innovative in that you know it's amazing that other instrumentalists I think of maybe the, the you know the the cello guys who are, you know obviously they're 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 out there doing their thing but it's so innovative yeah. what it is you're doing with this kind of music um, you know and I, when you think of like I said a violinist you think okay you're gonna play either in the orchestra or maybe you go the country route, um, which I'm sure probably had maybe some appeal. I don't know what your taste in music is, but I mean, you know, a lot of bands, you think of the Zach Brown band, for example, you know, where the violin is very yeah. prominent in the music and, and, you know, an amazing violinist. Um, but certainly in a different, you know, it's a different style of music. You took it with the electronic elements. Were, the, were those kind of musics that were things that were maybe you were passionate about as a teenager or things like that, that you thought maybe I could fuse these styles absolutely and that was kind of my whole goal when i was like okay now i'm going to start to make my own sound you know now that i've um started playing with all these different people and i thought okay this makes sense play the music that you like and then you'll like what you play like whoa why have i never thought of this before i'd been playing music that had been written hundreds of years ago yeah and it was like no wonder this doesn't feel like me yeah and so at the time i was really into like Skrillex and dubstep and Bangarang in particular at the time that I started writing was like my favorite song and that's why I was like I really want to take the violin there and it was also fun for me to think wow it's never been done before and people kept telling me that like it was a bad thing they're like well that's never been done before like that's not a thing and I was like exactly like to me that was the, that was the exciting part about it because yeah. like you said there's a lot of country yeah. fiddle players um, there's a lot of, you know, violinists that do all kinds of different, you know, music, and I, no one had ever dabbled in EDM, and yeah. so I was like, exactly, it's never been done before, and that's a good thing, and um, that excited me rather than scaring me when I kind of came to this idea. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure it was a bit of a, a bit of a risk. I mean, obviously, when when you kind of create a bit of your own genre or at least your own niche inside of that you you run the risk of people going i don't really get it it doesn't make sense to me but when it works you know you're you're really pioneering something very new and very exciting which is i think awesome let me ask you this you know as is someone who has a young musician at home um who does kind of deal with that you know i don't want to play stuff from the 1800s uh do you get a lot of people who, who come to you and say, you know, I picked up this instrument or I had the courage to kind of dust it off and, and get re-excited and energized at playing by listening to your music? Does, do you have younger people come to you with that? I do. I have younger people and even, you know, I have fans that are older and that will come to me and say, hey, I picked up the violin that I haven't played in 15 years, or, you know, I, I decided to start playing because I've always wanted to play, and so it's young and old, and it, it gets me so excited, and, you know, when I say that, you know, classical music was written so long ago and it mm. didn't fit me, I have to say also, I have so much respect for classical music, sure. and to be honest, I don't think I had the, you know, I don't think I had um, enough passion about that kind of music personally to be the kind of musician that could play that kind of music if that makes sense sure and sure. so i have just so much respect for that art it is so you have to be so regimented and 
you know, and it is very much for some people. And so when I say that, I don't mean to sound at all like I'm sticking my nose up at it. It's actually quite the opposite. And I, you know, no longer have the chops to play like those those people do. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, I, I, you you listen to Paganini, and that can be quite daunting, you know, as, as a musician to listen to. Yeah. I'm not going to get to that, but how can I make my own my own way? Which is, I think, what's so exciting about the music you do. Um, you you also incorporate elements of dance, which I think, you know, probably anybody who's ever picked up the violin has got to marvel at that. How hard of a leap was that to incorporate? You know, the visual aspects of performing with the the rigors of the instrument itself. You know, it was such a it was such a leap at first and it I never imagined that I'd be able to do the kind of things I do now when I started mm-hmm. to start you know, to move and play one because I wasn't a dancer, I was a violinist. I was mm-hmm. not a dancer at all, like zero. And so I just was trying to make movement possible with the violin and so it was more like you know a kick here like being able to like lean back and just kind of like rock out with the music was the original intent but um i had to choreograph it all like even the most simple moves of you know walking and stepping here and kicking there like because it took so much concentration and discipline i i had to choreograph every move um and then because it was choreography though it just i started to like slightly push the envelope more and they'd be like well oh my gosh i can actually do a pretty good back bend okay mm-hmm. interesting oh wow i can do a pretty good like high kick okay um can i spin you know so it's just like evolved and i never would have thought that i would be hanging upside down you know wrapped in a trapeze <laughs> right spinning and playing a violin or being able to do full-out choreography with dancers like you know, it's just been really fun to continuously challenge myself and stretch the envelope and see where it can go. And um, But, yeah, because at the beginning it felt so impossible, it's been pretty cool to take it just step by step and look back and be like, I've come quite a long way. Wow. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, it's fascinating. And, and as a fan, it'll be very exciting to see where you take this, you know, going forward. Well, Lindsay, I know you're, you're incredibly busy. I want to thank you for your time. You'll be here on the 13th in Pittsburgh, Benetton Center. Monday night, but I'm sure it'll be a full house for your Christmas show. And then we look forward to to whatever's next for Lindsay Sterling. Thank you so much. Awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate your thoughtful questions. Thanks. All right, that about wraps up this episode of Iron City Rocks. Big thank you to Lindsay Sterling. Uh, if that sounded like an interesting show to you, head over to trustarts.org. I would expect that show to sell out. That's the 13th of December. So there's still a little bit of time to get tickets for that. That's a Monday night. Uh, no Steeler game that week. No reason not to get out and enjoy some amazing holiday music, get in the spirit. Also, want to thank so much Warren Haynes. Absolute honor to talk to him. A musician I've been a big fan of uh, for many, many years uh, for coming on the show. Heavy Load Blues is available now. We'll look for that new studio album in 2022 and hopefully a Mule show in the Pittsburgh area before long. Um, if you've never had an opportunity to see government Mule, Alive, um, and, and you're maybe not sure because you've you've heard of them as a jam band. Um, I, I've never been a huge fan of the jam genre, uh, but I can tell you the government meal scratches a lot of itches. Uh, there, there's good straight on rock and roll, as Warren said. They've never shied away from blues music in the past. Uh, great rock music. Warren is an amazing, amazing singer. So, highly recommend Government Mule Live. 
uh, from personal experience and uh, would very much look forward to seeing them in 2022 would be fantastic so check out heavy load blues now you can visit us at ironcityrocks.com or on all the social medias we're on for we are forward slash iron city rocks and you can reach us at ironcityrocks at gmail.com love to hear from you let us know what you think what kind of music you're into what things you like about the show what things you don't like about the show we'd love to hear it all so until next time thank you for taking the time to listen <laughs>